funny, I told you the song numbers, and then as soon as I sat down, I forgot what they were. (laughs) We're going to be in uh, Psalm 58 this evening. It continues a, a general theme that we've been looking at, and that is with David being pursued by Saul. And David's prayer, David's lament, um, David's prayer while he's being pursued by Saul. We really see in David's life the story of mankind in society. And what that story is, is a familiar tune to all of us, is that we don't see true justice in this world, do we? In fact, there's a lack of justice that we see. But we're comforted by the fact as Christians that there's coming a day of justice. And so as we look at David, who was being pursued by Saul, the king, we see a lack of justice in David's case. Saul was a madman. He was possessed. He was bent on killing David He killed priests, he killed numerous people to try to get to David and pursue him. Uh, He was consumed with that over the needs of Israel itself. He was a complete madman chasing after David. David had been loyal to him. David would not lay a hand on Saul even when he had an opportunity to. Uh, David was actually Saul's most loyal citizen. He was faithful to Saul all the way to the end, despite Saul pursuing him. But we do see these psalms where David is actually praying for the Lord to bring his vengeance upon Saul and those that would side with Saul. And that's what we see in the psalm before us. It begins by saying, the same as in Psalm 57, where we see, to the choir master, according to do not destroy, which is the tune that this would be have been sung with. It's a miktum, which is a musical term. We're not really familiar with what that means. But it's a miktum of David. And so David was the human author of this. We begin in verse 1. I'll read the text, and then we'll come back and look at it verse by verse and then apply it. In verse 1, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. 
Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is the word of the Lord. We see this psalm can be divided up into three sections, and you'll notice as there's a change in the emphasis and just naturally following the psalm, you see in the first five verses the attribute of wicked rulers. In verses 6 through 9, you see a prayer for destruction of wicked rulers. So, we start off with the attributes, what do wicked, wicked rulers look like? And then there's a prayer for their destruction. And then followed by, in verses 10 and 11, God's judgment and the people's praise of God's judgment. And this begins with the question, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? And we have to just pause right there. This word for gods here, Elim, not Elohim, that is the normal word for gods or God that we see. It's only here in this psalm. It's the only place in this psalm. Um, But it, it can make some uncomfortable because the psalm is addressing gods, lowercase g. It can be translated differently in rulers or mighty people. But I just want to pause and, and point something out. If you look at Psalm 82, so if you just turn over to Psalm 82, and you look at verse 6 of Psalm 82, Jesus quotes verse 6 in John chapter 10, verse 34, when he's making a point. But it says, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. We have to take these two psalms, which are are very interesting, because both psalms are addressing God's lowercase g and the issue of justice. Both psalms are about justice and a lack thereof of it. And specifically, it's using of this term, of God's lowercase g. Now, is this an admission that there are other gods that are lesser gods? No, absolutely not. In fact, in Psalm 82, right after it says, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless like men. This is speaking of rulers that rule unjustly. This is speaking of rulers. And same thing with Psalm 58. It is speaking of wicked rulers. It is speaking of men. It's not speaking of some other form of God. But it's important we point this out. Um, Over the last several years, there's been a very popular book, um, The Unseen Realm. It was a bestseller that uses these verses as a, as a jumping-off point uh, to reinterpret Psalm 82 in such a way 
that I would certainly not be comfortable with. And so I, I stopped there just to make that point because many people have come to me even here with that book asking me to look at it. And we have to understand something called parallelism. When you're interpreting scripture, particularly poetry, you have to look at parallelism to interpret it. Psalm 82 is really clear where it says, you gods, and then next the line is like men. It's clear what it's referring to. Here, we see a, an issue of parallelism. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Then do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. So clearly that next part, do you judge the children of man uprightly, is a parallel statement to what was stated there. So we don't interpret those differently, even though they're different sentences. We understand it's speaking of the same thing, of judgment. Uh, by the way, I know that you might think, why are we talking about parallelism? Because I hope you read the Psalms. <laughs> and I hope you, when you read the Psalms, you understand how to read the Psalms that we're reading poetry. And we interpret poetry as it's meant to be interpreted, as poetry. And so sometimes you'll come across a passage that's difficult. Well, you have to keep it in context and look and see, in this case, how do we understand what is say, said there? Well, there's a parallel statement to it that's saying the exact same thing. There's my excursus. Verse 1. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? This is a rhetorical question. This is asking a question of whether these wicked rulers do what is right. In other words, do they do justice? Do they practice righteousness? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? The answer is that we will see given is no. They do not. So the context of this is about wicked rulers that are unrighteous that practice injustice. And specifically here, it is those that are in power. Let's say many of the people working with King Saul that as Saul is pursuing David, they're silent. They don't speak out when they could. They remain silent. In fact, many translations use that word, silence. Why do you speak silence? So how many powerful people were in positions that could have spoken out against Saul's madness. They didn't, and guess what? Scripture holds them responsible. How many powerful men were observing what Mao Zedong did when he killed millions? How many powerful men were in positions to say something when Stalin was killing his people through night terrors? And they said nothing. Why did they remain silent? 
people in positions of power. Well, it was a fear of man, right? But they're held responsible for it. They practice injustice by their silence. Think about that. Through silence, there is an injustice that takes place. The word justice is used quite a bit today, and it's been hijacked by the social justice movement. One of the terms that we often see used is we need to have equity. So, in 1828, according to the Webster's Dictionary, I I normally only use it once a year, but Sam, I used it twice now this year. This is how it defines equity, is this way. Equal, even, justice, or right. In practice, equity is the impartial distribution of justice or the doing that to another which the laws of God and man, reason, give right to claim. Today, it's defined the same way. Justice according to natural law or right. That's justice. Impartial justice. Lady Liberty is supposed to be blind, right? Uh, Equity doesn't mean that anymore. Justice doesn't mean that anymore. Now it doesn't mean an equal playing field. It actually means an equal outcome. So, That's not a practice of justice. That's a practice of injustice for one person in favor of another person. So we have, in our day and age, we have gotten to a place of injustice in the pursuit of what? Of justice. And that's what's thrust upon us. That's what's thrust upon in the workforce. That's what's thrust upon our schools. That's what's thrust upon our whole entire society And that's what was taking place in David's time, too. Same thing. Injustice. Anytime there's injustice, and anytime we live in this world, there's going to be injustice. There's wicked people that rule. And that's just a reality of the life we live right now. Is that there is wickedness, and there are wicked rulers. So on one hand, should we be surprised when we see wickedness reigning and we see injustice in the world? Oh, well, no, we shouldn't. So how does David handle this? Well, after asking the rhetorical question, do you judge the children of man uprightly? Do you practice justice? The answer is no. Verse 2, no, you don't. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. That's an interesting statement because he's speaking of their silence when they were in a position to speak, and yet they're silent. But there's an interesting progression here. And what we see is, no, in your hearts you devise wrong. Your hands deal out violence on earth. From our hearts to our actions. We see, and it begins where? In their hearts. There was something wrong with their hearts. These wicked rulers that were in a position of power, there was something in their heart. Actually, they were born with natural hearts, and the natural heart is bent upon its own fleshly desires. And that's exactly what was taking place here. And as a result, it ends in violence everywhere. 
But he says this in verse 3, and I want you to pay attention to this. There's so many implications of verse 3. They are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Begin with, they, the wicked are estranged from the womb. What does that say about the womb? That there's a life in there that's a human life. That's the first thing that we ought to know that there's a human life in there, but it also tells us something this, is that we are born with the sin of Adam. We inherit Adam's sin. Notice what David says. David says this about himself, where he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So not only do we see the fact that that's a life in the womb, But that's a life that's in desperate need of the gospel. That's a life that needs to see the light of day. But here, it states a fact, and this is that we are born not innocent. We are not born neutral. We are not born with an original righteousness that goes away whenever we decide to sin. We're born as sinners, is what the text is telling us. You might say, well, this is speaking of the wicked. Yes, that's everyone that's ever been born. Anyone that has ever been born, this can be said of, except for one. The Lord Jesus Christ. It teaches us something else is that this is our course unless the Lord intervenes. It also tells us something that we should also note here. And I think that we're going to see this theme again later in the psalm is that In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're told we're of the seed of the serpent or we're of the seed of the woman. That's how we are born. These wicked rulers were never regenerated. They began that way. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. How quick does it take for a child to to be able to say their first lie. I know they're cute. And we love them. But it doesn't take very long. You don't have to teach them that, do you? How many of you taught your children how to lie? They picked it up on their own, didn't they? We have to correct that, right? goes on to describe them. They have venom, which is their speech. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. And so it's interesting. They're now compared to venomous snakes, which is not a compliment. It's not a flattering statement to say that they are a snake. And it goes on to say, so that 
It does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. In other words, they're so obstinate that there's no reasoning with them. There's no speaking with them that can talk them out of their foolishness. But it also communicates the danger of these. And remember, the context is speaking of those that are in positions of power. Now you think about people that are in positions of power. They have considerable power to where they can cause damage and violence to people. And that's exactly what we see here in them being compared to a serpent. So they're dangerous. This changes, really, how David would see them when he describes them in this manner. How is it that we see wicked rulers? How is it that society views wicked rulers? Do you know the the famous picture of Mussolini being hung? He was already dead when they did that. It already shot him. The people were so angry when a horrible dictator died, they hung him symbolically. How did they see him? How do people see wicked rulers? They see them for who they are, as wicked rulers. This is a description of wicked rulers. This is the attributes that we see. But then it goes on to a prayer of destruction. Verse 6, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. What does that mean? For a a snake, it renders them harmless. They no longer have the force. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Render them useless. And this is speaking of people. But then verse 7 begins to move into their plans and their cause. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Meaning, may their plans, may their cause, may their intentions uh, be rendered useless. Render them useless? Take away their danger? But then the next step is remove their cause, remove their plans, make their intentions useless so that they cannot harm. That's the prayer. It's twofold. Rendering the individual useless and then rendering their plans useless. He goes on to say, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Quite a picture But there is a picture is that the wicked rulers spoil all they touch. And they certainly do. And he says this, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. And that that is very vivid language. But it's poetic language to say this, that they cannot grow and flourish. That's, That's the language is trying to communicate. May these that are wicked rulers, may their power not increase. May they not grow. May they not flourish. And then he finally prays for swift punishment. He says, sooner than your pots can fill the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. What's he praying for? Lord, 
remove these wicked rulers. And, and here's the thing. He's not praying directly for Saul. Saul's name is not mentioned. Now, certainly Saul would be, this could be applied to Saul. But he's speaking of those that were silent. He's speaking of those that were in a position to have said something, but didn't say anything at all. And he's saying, Lord, take them away. Sweep them away. Let me praise this. When we see God's judgment and the people's praise in verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. So he prays for swift judgment, for swift punishment. And he says that when the Lord brings this, the people will rejoice. Now I want to I just point out something very practical. There's a contrast in this here and all of these psalms that we've looked at for the most part, of a contrast between the righteous, that is God's people, that God has chosen, that God has set apart for his own use. There's the righteous that have been made righteous by faith, and then you see the injustice of wicked rulers, you see the wicked, and there's this contrast with two outcomes of their life, two ways of looking at their life, uh, two goals in their life. One is glory of man, the other is glory for God. Two different destinations. In fact, you see this very, the very first psalm is there is the man that is blessed and planted by streams of water, and then there are those that cannot stand in the congregation of the righteous. So you see these two different paths constantly contrasted here. And what we have to see and what we have to get down inside of us is they're incompatible paths. They're incompatible people groups. They're not reconciled together. Now you want people to be reconciled. But it is to say that the wicked and the righteous are on two separate paths. This is why I think Paul tells us so clearly in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. They're two different paths. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's such an, an important thing to get down. And it, it's, it's hard to get that in how we think but we must think that way, and young people, you must think that way, especially in, in your phase of life that you're going through, is not to be unequally yoked. 
This is a business partnership that it was referring to in the context of 2 Corinthians, but it applies to all areas of our life. That doesn't mean we don't have uh, friends that aren't Christian. That doesn't mean that at all. For If we were to remove ourselves out of the world, how would we ever be able to go and proclaim the gospel and the truth to the world? But it is to say that we don't get unequally yoked, and that yoke is the crossbeam that goes across the back of two oxen. They're not to be unequally yoked because one will pull and the other one will not. It doesn't work, in other words. Instead of plowing the field, that's the illustration from Deuteronomy of the yoke, instead of plowing the field in a straight line and working together in harmony, you actually go in circles. That's what happens when we partner with the wicked. So we see two paths. Two destinations, two different groups, the righteous and the wicked. And they have two endings that will take place, and we have to see this. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance, when the Lord judges them. That would be hard to have that frame of mind there and then be equally yoked, which is impossible with unregenerate. Look what he says in the rest of verse 10. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. I think that there's something we should see in this. And again, pointing to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, many commentators point out this is the reference here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Not only does the Messiah actually accomplish this, but we see this also take place with the righteous. And perhaps in Psalm 58, it's speaking of poetically of what happens when you crush the serpent's head. You get blood on your heels. Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Revelation 19, verse 13. He, this is speaking of Christ, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. There's coming a day when these will be fully realized. Verse 11. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. In other words, we will believe in that day of judgment that God is just. We claim that God is just. We claim that God is good because his word tells us that. God reveals himself as those things. If God did not execute vengeance and justice on the final day, could we say that God is good? No, he'd be an unjust judge. He would be a judge that shows partiality. So when we see that day coming... We will say, 
there is a God. So this is what David is praying as he's being chased and he reflects on the wickedness of man and he sees wicked men that are in positions of power to do right, but they don't do right. And there's a couple of points that I want us to see here is this. Even in God's theocratic society where they had a specific way of governance that was given to them, what still took place? Injustice. The judicial law that they could follow and were supposed to follow did not solve the problem of the heart. Look at verse 2. Know in your heart you devise wrongs. Saul would have known the law of God. His advisors would have known the law. It was the duty of Israel's king to see that all aspects of it were kept. They had it. And they had a moral law written upon their hearts. But it didn't save the heart of man, did it? So while we want just laws, while we want them, we have to recognize that it depends upon men and their hearts, doesn't it? The problem is the heart. What gets at the heart? When God gives them a new heart through the preaching of the gospel. There's also something else here. We see this as this is... Failure to speak about injustices when in a position to do so is to actually support the cause of wickedness. That we're not led by a fear of of man. So when we have the ability to speak and we're in positions uh, that we should speak when we see injustice, what should we do? We should call people to be accountable. Something else here. We often question the horrors of wicked leaders. And when we see it, we, we want to take matters into our own hands. And so, just stick with me for a moment on this. How is it that we balance some things that we see in Scripture instructions? So, for instance, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 17, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we live peaceably with man and yet stand for justice as defined by God? That can be difficult. 
One thing is that's comforting here is that we do recognize this even when we're not in a position to do anything about it. There is coming a day of ultimate vengeance where God will do these things. We have to always recognize the heart issue again. That the gospel is the solution. That's why Jesus tells us to go and proclaim the gospel. Because it's there that men are given new hearts. And being reminded of this is that there are wicked people. It doesn't lead us to quietism. It doesn't lead us to do nothing. We do recognize and and are comforted by knowing that God's vengeance will soon take place. That's how we live with it. But we also use means that are within our power. I was, just, I was just speaking with someone about William Wilberforce, who was a hero of the faith. He was an abolitionist. He wanted to see slavery ended. And he would take people down to the shipyards and show them this is what slavery looks like. He used any means possible. He would come in before Parliament and show them the chains and say, this is what human beings are put in. You know, one of the things that I love about our new sidewalk ministry that we've done with Love Life is that we want to take as many people to the sidewalk as we can and say, this is where they kill babies. Because when you see that visibly, it does something to you. Because we're in a place of and position to speak on behalf of the unborn. That's an injustice. Abortion is the greatest plight in American history. And that's controversial to say that. But it is. As many as the injustices as we have here, the worst is the murder in the womb. We want to use any means possible for abolition. We do that even knowing this. I might not always be at peace with my neighbor when I do it. My attempt is to live peaceably with all men. But I know that when I have a voice to say something for life and I speak for life, it might bring me into direct conflict, maybe even violent conflict with my neighbor. And you know what? That's okay. That's what we're called to do. We cannot be silent about those things. Even as we live peaceably with all mankind. God has declared that murder is evil. And so therefore, we would want to see murder of all ages of life eradicated. There's something else, though. We look at wicked rulers, and it's so easy to say, and I know this, I know this about you, You were thinking of different leaders 
while I've been talking. It's, I, I was too. It's so easy, though, to look at wicked rulers and say, they're, oh, they're so bad. They're going to have their vengeance one day. They're going to receive God's wrath. They're going to be punished. And we're going to rejoice, and that's all true. Here's the thing. Every single one of us deserves it as well. None of us are no be- any better. We are completely saved by God's grace. We did not earn the salvation that we have been given. And we go back to justice. All are equally sinful before God and deserving of his wrath. I deserve the wrath of God just as much as the most wicked, brutal dictator. Because when we begin to qualify that, we then move into a works-based situation and begin to think, well, I'm not as bad as that person. We, We don't realize this, is that you are closer to the most brutal dictator in the history of mankind than you are to the holiness of God. And that's just a fact. God is infinitely holy. And so when we see wicked rulers, we have to recognize, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so while we see this and what God will do, and we are reminded of how we will live, we also have to praise God that he was merciful to us in his grace and that we do not deserve it, but that we serve a merciful God. And we will praise him for his mercy and we will praise him for his justice as well. And so let us praise him by closing in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are our holy God, that you are a just God, that you are full of mercy, you are full of forgiveness and grace, and that uh, we have done nothing to earn your favor. We have done nothing that could work our way up to being good. It is purely by your grace that you save a people to yourself. We know we do not deserve it, and Father, as we see wicked rulers, even in our own time or in, or in history, maybe, may we be taught by it that if it wasn't for your grace, there we would be. And Father, may we try to live peaceably with all of mankind, but may we also not be silent when you've called us to speak. We need your courage. We need, to, we need your grace for us to be brave. Father, we need your word hidden in our heart that we can proclaim it boldly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.